Hi, everyone. This is Susan Poisner, host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. Are you a certified arborist or master gardener who needs continuing education credits to maintain your certification? Check out OrchardPeople.com's Tree Quiz app, where you can listen to past episodes, take quizzes, and apply for credits. Learn more at OrchardPeople.com app. That's OrchardPeople.com app. Enjoy it and enjoy today's show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. Wow, it's been a big year this year for crazy weather. Have you seen those images of flooding in Texas? They're so scary. And if you're a listener there, I really hope you keep safe and stay dry. It seems that more and more, the weather around the world is getting really strange. Here in Canada, we've also have our, had our share of strange weather recently. We have warm winters when it should be cold and wet summers when it should be dry. And so when the weather is just right, it is so important for us to thank the universe and for us to go out and enjoy it. So right now in Toronto, the weather is getting cooler. It's sunny, it's breezy, and it's a perfect time to enjoy and celebrate the harvest by visiting a local orchard. I love wandering around and admiring the beautiful fruit trees. And I love tasting and buying delicious and different cultivars of apples and other fruit. But the thing is, when I visit orchards, I also learn a lot. And a while back, I visited Avalon. It's called Avalon Organic Orchards in Ontario. And I met the owner, Gay Tremblay. So Gay grows thousands of disease-resistant apple trees in her orchard. She features unusual cultivars like Gallerina, Red Free, Pristine, and Novamac. And I asked her, of course, what her secret of success is. This was her answer. If you have good soil, you'll have healthy trees. And if you have healthy trees, you'll have great fruit. And that has stuck with me ever since. But what happens if you're stuck with the crummy soil in your yard, which is hard as a rock and filled with construction rubbish? Or what if you live in a sandbox? Does that mean you can't plant fruit trees or grow anything at all? Well, let's find out. In today's show, I'm going to chat with Liz Stell, author of a book called Secrets to Great Soil. And she's on the line from the Berkshires in Massachusetts. 
Now, I recently discovered Liz's book, and I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it. It's illustrated. It takes the fear out of working to improve your soil. And guess what? You, as a listener, will have a chance to win a copy of the book during this live broadcast by sending us an email during the show. Remember to include your first name, the city you come from, and why you're interested in winning a copy of Secrets to Great Soil. Send your email to me now at instudio101 at gmail.com. And during the show, if you have any questions for Liz about soil, you can email in those questions too, or tell your story. Like, how did you improve your soil? What's the soil like where you're growing your fruit trees, vegetables, and other crops? Again, send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Now, in the meantime, Liz Stell, author of Secrets to Great Soil, is on the line. Liz, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, Susan. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. So first of all, I want to ask you, I t- your your book is, is beautiful. It's, it's simple in a way. It's beautifully illustrated. What was your inspiration or what were your goals when you w- decided to write this particular type of book? Well, I wanted to get other people interested in soil. I've, I've always been interested. I guess I've been a bit of a soil nerd. And there are books for soil nerds, people who are really into it. But the people who aren't sure if they're into it or not... Um, uh, some of the books that were available 20 years ago were a little too technical or just assumed you were already converted to organic gardening. Um, the Internet wasn't around 20 years ago. So I wanted um, just to inspire people or intrigue people or make it seem like soil was something that was easy to find out about and play around with. Well, it's interesting because you say right off the bat, and and like you say, you wrote this book a while back. It's, I think, a classic. It's beautiful. Um, but why, what is it about soil that inspired you so much? I got to tell you when, you know, if you're talking to people at a party and you say, you know, I'm passionate about soil, I think they might look at you funny. It's possible it's a case of arrested development. I might <laughs> be stuck back in a mud pie land. I'm not sure. I, I liked mud pies as a kid. And I've always been interested in it. Uh, driving by a, a highway construction, if you see a cutaway bank, the soils are different colors and different layers. And I just thought that was cool, and I wondered why. Um, I, I, I just have always liked gardening. And, and do you I've see been your... an environmentalist forever. So pretty early on, I thought, um, even not so much strictly organic gardening, I just wanted to find out how to grow healthier plants without chemicals. And that just increased my interest in soil because that's the way to do that. And when you think about it, I mean, it's such it's a thing like we walk on it all the time. We don't pay attention to it. But what a difference that good soil makes to how we eat or how we live and how we breathe. Good soil smells good. It's fluffy when it's when it's not wet. It, I I like sticking my hands in it. So maybe I am a little bit different, but I I think it's interesting. And the more if if you start playing around with it a little bit, I just think most people are bound to get a little bit interested anyway. Well, I I certainly have found for myself growing fruit trees, and like I said in my introduction, it's like so depends on the soil you'll have. I will be working with a group and planting fruit trees in one location. 
and they jump out of the ground. And that, you know, maybe we didn't do anything to amend the soil before. In another location, you think it's a perfect site and the, the trees have such a hard time. So, you know, your soil really makes a huge difference um, to how your trees and your plants will grow. So in your book, you have a chapter on evaluating your soil. Like, why do you think it's important to know what you've got? Well, um, it helps you grow better plants. If you're interested in growing trees, you can um, spend a lot of money on tree stock that dies if you <laughs> have certain known problems. The, the most important is um, flooding or puddling. If you try to plant trees someplace where water collects after a rain, they're, they're probably going to rot. Uh, very few trees, fruit trees will tolerate that. So um, the, f- most, the most obvious one is drainage. You need to see how the soil drains to make sure you don't have an area that turns into a swamp after a big rain. Um, and it, if you have heavy clay, it's, you have a little more work ahead of you to make the, the soil nice for trees. Um, clay is, is great stuff if you respect it. Um, I have clay soils. I grew up on even more clay soils. And um, if you don't compact them, uh, if you uh, work with them, they grow all kinds of food crops wonderfully. Um, sand is the same. It, it, it can be wonderful. You just need to exert a little effort to make sure um, you're not watering every five minutes. So... Um, and if you have, if you're going to try to grow blueberries on a, a limestone outcrop, you're going to have a really hard time, and maybe you need to think about a different plant. <laughs> so it really helps to know what you're starting with, because you can improve many soils up to a point. See, I love what you said, because I think what happens is so many of us, we come to a spot and we're like, okay, and I want to grow some blueberries here and some raspberries, and then I'm going to put some fruit trees in and I'm going to, and it's all about you, right? It's all about me. It's all about what I want, right? And I think that the more that I do this, it's like, you know, people come to me and say, oh, we want to, I want to plant a food forest. And, And again, it's a swampy site. And I'm like, well, I think it's really admirable to plant a food forest, but I'm not sure that that's the site for it. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it seems like when it comes to soil, there is no one size fit all, like all, all soil is good in a way. Well, maybe not some soils, urban soil, (laughs) but it's all good in a way, but you have to find the right plant for the soil. Do you think? It's, it's a relationship. You work with each other, you figure out what works, You, you come to under an understanding of what's mutually beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. Just by testing. Yes. By trying to see what you've got. How often when you, you know, plant a new garden, will you do a soil test? Do you think that's important? I do. Um, I have been fortunate to stay in one spot for 30 years, so I haven't done that for a while. Um, Before you do a soil test, I would look at your site, um, partly to figure out the best spot to plant and the best spot to do a soil test. But what's, what's, if you look carefully at what's already there, you'll get some idea. If it's a whole field of dandelions, 
probably means um, the area stays moist. That might be because it's um, it's poorly drained. It might be because there's clay. Um, if you have fabulous chickweed, if you try a little vegetable garden and grow gorgeous spinach, those are two great test plants. If chickweed grows really well and if spinach grows r- really well, then most plants, trees, uh, fruit bushes will grow really well. Wow, that is amazing. That is very interesting. That's magic. If you don't happen, if if you if you before you plant spinach, <laughs> if you want to know what you've got um, in the U.S., you uh, m- most states will do soil testing through the Cooperative Extension Agency. Sometimes local master gardeners will do soil testing, but that might just be the, the pH, the acidity of the soil. Um, if you want to do organic gardening, um, it, it might be worth spending some money and getting a test from a, um, a company that specializes in organic farming. They'll, they'll tell you more about your soil than the cooperative extension agent will. Mm-hmm. But you'll have to pay a little money for that. They'll tell you about the organic content um, uh, and just give you slightly different recommendations. A soil test is a great place to start out. Um, you need to go, each site will have a, each testing lab will have a slightly different uh, approach to how you dig your sample. You need to t- take a sample from more than one spot. So you need to follow the recommendations of your particular lab in order to get consistent results. Mm-hmm. So that can be a head start if you don't know sort of what plants and weeds to look f- look at. Yeah, I guess I like what you said about about it's a relationship. It's like you getting to know the soil, the soil getting to know you to see what you want and what it wants. So it's interesting. We got um, an email from listener Norman. I don't know where Norman is from. No, he or Norman's opening a can of worm because he asks, what are Liz's thoughts on annually rototilling? Now, rototilling, oh my goodness, I think once it was like a standard, wasn't it? That's what you did every year. You rototilled or, um, your soil and you maybe put in some nice compost or something. What are your feelings on rototilling? Well, we used to have a rototiller, um, an ancient model. And when I started out, yes, we rototilled our beds to get them started. I had some cover crops that I wanted to turn under. Um, the rototiller being the same age as me, uh, was a little bit cranky, so we <laughs> gave that to a farmer friend and got a mini tiller, but pretty soon that just sat in the shed because um, I started learning more about soil organisms. Um, I also, uh, in an earlier location, I double dug my beds, which there was clay soil there, so there, there is... There are a few reasons for double digging. That used to be a standard recommendation. It's a great way to burn calories. <laughs> um, but um, unless you have uh, real problem soils, that's not considered necessary. And deeply disturbing the soil is, for most gardeners, if you're, if you're not a farmer, there's really there's not much reason to rototill. People have done it successfully. I knew a fellow... 
um, when I was in college, one of the professors had beautiful raised beds because he had been tilling in leaves every fall hmm. for 30 years, and the beds just kept growing higher and higher with more organic matter. Wow. So his and yet, worms survived the rototilling. He must have warned them, all the worms and all the organisms, hey, guys, I'm going to till today, so you guys go down, right? Yes. And I think <laughs> just for the listeners that don't know, there are so many organisms in the soil that we're learning more and more about. And we realize the more you disturb the soil, you're, deser- you're disturbing their habitat, and they're really important for healthy soil and for great vegetables and and great trees. So I love what you said. You know, some people got away with it forever. Um, but but so now you're saying the rototiller is in the shed. Well, and we've actually passed that along, too. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's not even on the property anymore. Okay, good to know. Nope, nope. Um, All right. Uh, n- not needed. Uh, even if you want to, well, I I now have switched over to mulching in my vegetable beds rather than um, cultivating for weed control. Occasionally, the scuffle hoe comes out when I get a little bit behind, uh, and I don't mulch everything. Hmm. But um, mulching is a great way to suppress weeds. And um, we used to think that, well, a generation ago, it was thought that rototilling is how you opened up the soil for better drainage, but in fact, leaving it in place, so long as you're not at the bottom of a, of a swamp, um, leaving the soil in place, the, the organisms will create little channels for you, hmm. and that's what you're destroying when you rototill, so you're substituting, uh, it's, it's the sledgehammer approach, I will make the soil more open, Whereas the organi- organisms will do a more subtle version of bigger channels and little channels wow. in, in healthy soil. Oh, uh, this, this assumes that the organisms have enough organic matter to feed on. Right. That if there's no organic matter, you won't have many um, organisms to help you out. So maybe, and, th- and I think this is going to be a relevant point for the next question. If there's not enough organic matter, is there even any organisms in your soil? So I've got this email from Kelly. Kelly is from Indiana. Kelly sounds like an interesting person. She says, I'm planting on brownfield lots in in an urban environment for a few different community garden projects. Each one has its own needs and micro environments. But the one thing that they all have in common is the fact that they only have dirt. She says, I have dug down two feet in places and have not found one bug or a worm. (laughs) She says, it's a challenge and I could use your advice. We are planting everything from veggies to fruit and nut trees. What can you suggest for us here in West Central Indiana? Ooh, good question. Thank you very much, Kelly. So, wow. What would you say to Kelly, Liz? If money were no object, I would say... Uh, find the highest quality compost around and get a couple of truckloads. Um, I suspect that she doesn't have money to to cover all growing areas with two or three inches of lovely um, compost. So um, that's the ideal. Most of us can't quite afford that. Hmm. Um, So the second idea is Wait a little bit to plant trees because trees are more expensive. Start with annual vegetables and w- while you b- build the soil, I would um, recommend buying 
a truckload of wood chips from an arborist, not um, the pretty cedar mulch that's all even, but um, and maybe a local tree company will actually donate um, the chipped material that they've pruned off of people's trees. But if she can get a load of um, from an arborist that has uh, big trunks, little trunks, maybe leaves chopped in there too, just a, a nice messy mix of shredded trees, and if she can dump that on the site um, and leave it for a year, she'll create a haven for all kinds of wonderful fungal organisms. That's especially important for tree crops. Hmm. So that um, would be a multi-year plan. That would be a multi-year plan, and in the short term, chopped leaves, uh, compost, um, and in fact, if, if she's starting vegetable beds, um, this is a great time to mention trench composting, where you just dig a trench and fill it with whatever you can get, chopped leaves, have people bring in there. Get coffee grounds from a, a, a local coffee shop. Often they'll give them away. That's a nice source of nitrogen. So fill trenches in areas that you want to be vegetable beds, and this, those should be ready next year for planting, and they'll definitely have more organisms. If you can bring some compost from home, you might bring a few earthworms with it. Um, here, so let's summarize a little bit. So you've got some great ideas. Um, so one idea was lots of wood chips, and I do think that if you say that you're a community gardener, you will get them donated. So a layer of wood chips you're talking about, you're talking about, um, we're going to talk in the next part of the show after the commercials, we're going to talk about trench composting because I think it's an awesome idea. So Kelly will get some more interesting information about that in a few minutes. Um so yeah, so there's there are a few things, and of course, bringing in soil if she can afford it. We'll also talk, and it's probably going to be after the commercial break about uh, cover crops, and maybe that would be an option as well. Um, let's just do this. I'm going to ask you one more question from Andy. We'll have a quick answer to that, and then. We're going to go into more detail after the commercials because there's so many great topics that we're bringing up. So here's Andy's email. Hi, Andy here from Belleville, Ontario. Just love your show. Thank you so much, Andy. We love you as a listener. That was me writing. <laughs> um, a question for your guest. My entire yard is clay. What can I do to improve it? Thank you. So is Andy's question kind of similar to Kelly's? Like it sounds like Kelly, Andy's got clay at least. Whereas Kelly's soil is like sounds like it's just subsoil or something. Who know who knows what she's got? <laughs> she just we know what she doesn't have. Right. Yes. So clay needs clay needs organic matter in order to behave well, and it needs to not be compressed. So um, uh, bringing in organic matter, um, growing organic matter with cover crops. Um, Compost is great, um, and spread it where you need it most and hope that um, the organisms will slowly migrate into the rest of the area. I'm not a huge fan of tilling up the whole area, but if it's really hard clay, then you could try a cover crop of, of buckwheat or something to just grow your organic matter right on site. Um, and I have turned it under by hand, but if you're doing a large lawn, that's um, 
That's a lot of calories. So <laughs> you may need to dust off the tiller then. Rent rent one because you won't need it for long. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a moment. Coming up in a minute, we're going to have a few words from our sponsors. But in the meantime, I'm reminding everybody, we'd love to hear your questions. We I can't wait to talk to Liz about all your questions. So send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. Remember to include your first name and the city you're writing from. So again, the email is instudio101 at gmail.com. So Liz, are you okay holding the line for a minute? Sure. Great. Uh, now, but before the commercial break, I need to uh, share a secret about you with the listeners. Is that okay? Can I share your secrets? Yes. <laughs> That's good. I'm so glad you're not too private a person. Liz Stell is a person that has two passions. One of them is soil and the other one is music. She's also a professional musician who specializes in music from historic times. And we're going to play some of her music during the show today so you can enjoy it. Okay, so coming up after the respite, we're going to talk about compost, doing it right, doing it wrong, and using it on your trees and plants. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com, and we'll be back after this short break. If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out OrchardPeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at OrchardPeople.com by visiting orchardpeople.com slash workshops. Looking for a quick, easy to apply and all natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer Hand Manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. If you want your fruit trees to live a long and healthy and productive life, it's essential that you water them properly when they're young. You need to water slowly and deeply so the moisture seeps into your young tree's expanding root system. That sounds easy enough, but you'd be surprised at how often the water you provide for your trees just rolls away, leaving its young roots high and dry. That's why we at TreePans.com have worked with orchards to develop a product that ensures all the water gets to your tree's root system. 
Our expandable tree pans funnel rain or irrigation water to the drip line of your young trees. Additionally, tree pans eliminate weed growth under the tree canopy, as well as protect your trees from mowers, tractors, and weed whips. Tree pans are used in orchards, city parks, and in residential yards. And once your young tree is established, you can move your tree pans to another young tree. Learn more about tree pans at treepans.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. In this show, we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. Now, in today's episode, we're talking about soil with Liz Stell, author of Secrets to Great Soil and a musician playing the songs, some of the songs we're listening today, today in the show. So, secrets to great soil. Do you want to know all of those secrets? Well, you can enter our contest and win a copy of Liz's book. So to enter, send us an email during the live show to instudio101 at gmail.com. Include your first name and the city you're writing from. And you can also send in your questions for Liz. And I guess if you're sending in a question, we'll consider you an entry as well for the contest. And if you don't have a question, just send us an email anyways. So Liz, you're still on the line, aren't you? Hello Yay. again. Love your music. That was so fun. Sorry, we had a little mix-up in the beginning. Somebody else's music snuck into the show. This show. Um, in the first part of the show, you mentioned trench uh, composting. Um, what's it called? Trench Tren- composting is is one form. Trench composting. So let's talk about that because in your book you talk about all sorts of different ways to compost. And, you know, you make it so simple, it's wonderful. But the trench one is a little different. If I have an empty yard that I want to turn into, let's say, a vegetable garden, how would how would this trench composting work? If um, I'm going to talk about three three related topics. One is trench composting, one is pit composting, and one is sheet composting. And they get easier as we go. Um, but if you have a, if you like rectangular beds, then you can, then trench composting makes sense, especially if you start a year in advance. You dig a trench, you pile the soil to one side, and you just put your compost, your vegetable waste, your um, pairings from any garden that you do have, um, maybe you can add some coffee grounds from the if you have a nice coffee shop nearby that gives them away. Any any kind of organic matter that's uh, not diseased and not loaded with weed seeds. Uh, raked leaves are fine. You put them in the trench, and as you fill up the trench, you cover the soil back up. And if you want to make it wider, you can add a dig another trench next to it. So you can. You just make your compost in the ground, 
Um, some people actually uh, do that in vegetable gardens as they rotate their beds. They just they trench a bed one year and keep it out of commission, and then the next year they trench another bed and plant the first one. So what's beautiful, if you see the illustration, you've got your veggie bed, let's say it's, I don't know, 10 feet by 4 feet, and you've got a couple of trenches in the middle, but you can plant your veggies right beside your trenches. So you've got a row of compost, essentially, which you will bury as you put in. So you put in your compost, your scraps from the kitchen, you bury it with the soil beside it, and you continue to bury it as you get more stuff, but then you plant your rows of seeds, and will the seeds in the alternative rows, will they benefit from having that rotting compost right next door? Um, so long as they're not, um, if it's next door, if it's a foot away, it's great. But um, if it's too close? If it's too close, um, some of it will be fine. Um, if you had a, a, a clot of, of grass that, that heated up, um, the seeds wouldn't like that so much. Um, if if you mix things up, um, which is a little harder to do in a trench, um, it's possible that that um, it, it's really only right around where the seeds are sprouting that it would be a problem. Okay, um, so so we've got this nice system. Now, one thing that I know from personal experience and many personal mistakes between us, I will tell you that, um, is that you really need to, usually when you're composting, you need to keep a balance between your sort of brown material, your leaves and, you know, papery things, and your um, green material, so the raw kitchen scraps. Do you have to keep that in mind when doing this trench composting? No, um, if you had, um, if you used straight compost, a uh, straight uh, sawdust, it would take longer, but it would eventually break down. Um, if if you had something that was really high in nitrogen, um, if you if you cover it little bit by little bit, you won't have. If, if you do it gradually, you won't have a problem. Um, and there's one very well. There's two variations I'd like to mention. Um, if you have perennial crops, or this is what a friend of mine does in her flower bed, she digs a little pit between the plants hmm. and buries her compost, especially her her um, weeding from the flower garden. She just buries it in the pit and covers it up, and that's her little... She's, she's gotten old enough that she doesn't want to turn compost or fork, fork it into a cart to spread around. She just does it right in her flower bed. And she's successful. And she's successful. She does a little pit here and a little pit there and in, in the gaps in her garden. Wow. So um, that's another option where you just dig enough for either what's in your kitchen container or um you know if you have a bucket full of weeds there again if, if there's a ton of weed seeds keep the weeds separate or chop off the seeds and and bury the rest and so again and there's, one, mm -hmm. there's one other option which is not to dig at all sheet composting is where you just spread it on the ground um and then you can either cover it with some newspaper or cover it with chopped leaves or um uh, I would cover it with something and just let the soil organisms take care of it. it it's a little slower. It's a little messier. But um, if you have fruit trees, you've got a lot of space to cover, and you can just cover them with, you can just cover the area with um, plant matter, kitchen scraps, <laughs> um, and then um, it's halfway between mulching and composting. Wow. It's 
slow, but it's lazy and wonderful if you have too many other things to do. Lazy and wonderful sounds good to most of us, I would say. Um, And also just something to keep in mind, if you are in the city, a city like Toronto that has a lot of raccoons, just keep that in mind that that might, you know, you want to think if you're going to do your pit composting, you might want to bury it a teeny bit deeper so the raccoons don't have fun. Especially if you have fruit. Um, I have a uh, a cage, an open-topped cage where I that's my compost pile. I do all forms of composting. And um, when we put, I, th- I think it was watermelon, but it might have been peach scraps, um, one of the local black bears came wandering by and um, bent all of my, <laughs> the sides of my compost heap looking for that luscious fruit. Oh, wow. So skunks also like fruit. Oh, boy. So if animals were a problem, um, then pit or trench composting with at least a couple of inches of dirt on top of all new additions will, is a good idea. I think it's a beautiful idea. I love it. We have a question here from Claudette. Claudette says, hello, I live in Los Angeles, California. Good question here. What is the best soil to grow roses, natural soil or bagged soil? Thank you. So, I mean, I love that question because that's what we all think, you know, is it good for me to use what I have or should I just sort of erase and start again and build a raised bed and put in other stuff? Um, Well, Pasadena is the city of roses, so she's she's in a good climate for roses, Um, fewer fungal diseases there. Um, I must say I've never dug uh, in Los Angeles. I don't know what her soils are apt to be. except uh, insufficiently watered. (laughs) So um, if her soils are healthy, there's no need to use bagged soils. If if she has um, very alkaline soil or hard pan, um, some of the southwestern soils are basically rock. They're, Hmm. they're, uh, it's hard to tell that they're not, (laughs) they're closer to rock than soil. If that's the case, then the bagged soils will be really useful. Um, but she could get a soil test, and it's possible that if her soil is close, um, I would usually opt for getting, for buying good compost and incorporating that with the existing soil rather than using bagged soils, which will be somebody else's good soil mixed with compost. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. And also sometimes you really don't know what you're buying depending on where you're buying your soil from. You know, if you get it at the side of the road somewhere, who knows what's in there? It could be worse than what you have. Who knows? That's an excellent point. Yeah. And it, it may be bringing unfriendly weeds as well. Yeah, exactly. So um, a quick uh, a question from, oh, here, Gail writes a question. Oh, my goodness. She says, wow, so much to learn. Where can I purchase Liz's book? Thank you. Oh, yes, I live in Orlando, Florida. Thanks. So your book, is it available online? It is available online through um, Story Publishing. Okay, Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, yep. Yes. Super, and so she can get a copy, and um, but then she's also entered into the draw because she, who knows, maybe she'll be the one who wins a copy. You never know. Um, I wanted to talk to you. This came up earlier, and we got a question from Fender. Fender did not write uh, where he or she is from. Is there one cover crop you highly recommend? So let's talk a little bit because some people may not know what is a cover crop. And so far, our questions are from people who are saying, oh, my gosh, what do I do? I've got this soil. It's not perfect. 
And cover crops come up again and again. So can you tell me a little bit, what is a cover crop? A cover crop is something that you grow just to uh, produce organic matter in your own site. Um, uh, some cover crops can also produce nitrogen. The ones, uh, legumes, um, do have nitrogen-fixing nodules in their roots, but you have to grow them for at least a year in order to generate enough nitrogen to be any use. So that's usually done more on a farm scale uh, or a very large garden. Most home gardeners um, don't do that uh, unless there are some interesting experiments using uh, hairy vetch and growing that and then using that as a mulch to grow tomatoes. But that's a small scale. Usually, usually uh, nitrogen cover crops are large scale. So the other ones, um, there's no one best because you have to figure out what your goal is. Buckwheat shades out weeds. That's wonderful. Um, it shades out annual weeds and grows a lot of stuff, and it breaks. it's soft, so it breaks down quickly. Um, I did that before we, uh, we had a new septic system installed, and half of our yard was, was dirt and dug up. And so since it was already disturbed, we grew two crops of buckwheat and turned them under and then planted our lawn. Uh, rye will also uh, suppress weeds um, and uh, if you're growing trees uh, you may want to grow nitrogen crops underneath the trees mm -hmm. uh, legumes mm -hmm. underneath the trees so that's a cover crop but you don't have to turn it under you can just um, maintain that under the tree so that's a that's a variant so that's that's the thing with cover crops from what i understand mostly you know they can be used in farms and whatever you'll grow them for a short time you find out when is the time the ultimate time to till them back to the t-i-l-l -L word to till them into the soil and then it increases the organic matter it's bringing nitrogen into the soil but does cover crop always mean till for those people out there that don't want to till and I just, I don't want people to get from this radio show that it's always wrong to till. There are times when you do have to, but it's a decision you make. So you were saying that your tiller, you ended up giving it away. Does that mean you no longer do cover crops? I no longer do cover crops because I have um, smaller gardens. I, um, I mulch a lot. I, I have now um, put wood chips on the paths in my vegetable garden. Um, so I, I keep weeds down with mulch, and I, um, I just rake the garden with a four-tined rake before I plant in the spring hmm. and smooth it. So I, I do not turn my soil over anymore, but I've been pampering it for 30 years, so it's <laughs> pretty good. Lucky soil. That is lovely soil. You know what, Liz? In a minute, we're going to hear a little bit more of your music, so we'll enjoy that, and then we'll have a commercial break. Um, and after that, we're gonna, we've got so much more to talk about. There are more questions. So let's hear a little bit of this wonderful music. Remind me, what instrument are you playing? I play the flute. My husband plays the piano and our fiddler plays the violin. Okay, well, let's, uh, some more music is coming up. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back in just a moment. 
My name is Mike McNair and I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists. They're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture, and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call. Here's how to reach us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario, and Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. Learn more at universalfieldsupplies.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalogue. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware.
Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To send her an email, email her right now, instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture, and lots more. Thanks for tuning in. In today's program, we've been talking about soil with Liz Stell, author of Secrets to Great Soil. And by the way, Liz is also a musician whose band has recorded the music we're playing on the show today. Do you want to win a copy of Liz's book? Just send us an email in studio101 at gmail.com and you may win. So Liz, um, I have a question here from Cliff. Cliff asked this question, it's a good one. We have several large trees near our raised beds and we see lots of roots popping up in those raised beds. Is there any solution for this, as I suspect the trees are being very opportunistic and taking nutrition away from our vegetable plants? What do you think about that? I think Cliff is right. Um, Ideally, you would move the... um, I had to move my asparagus because... Or I reestablished the asparagus because this beautiful white birch was um, enjoying the soil in the asparagus bed. Um, If you can't move the bed, then you need to do some root pruning, which I do with a, uh, the deepest shovel you've got, shovel or spade, and just go around the tree side of the beds every year and dig down and get the, the top, uh, cut through the top foot of tree roots. Um, the deeper ones will still go through there, but you'll reduce the number of surface roots. And if you, get, if you keep the surface roots out, you're vegetables should be able to coexist. That sounds fair enough. It's a it's a ongoing battle then. Every yeah. year you got to do your root pruning of the big old trees. Water is another oh. competitive issue. They the tree wants the water that the vegetables get right. or that, that the plants get. That makes sense. I I have a question for you. I've been wondering about this and thinking about this actually literally on and off for years. A few years ago, um in a listserv that I'm a member of, a woman wrote, and she's a volunteer in a local community uh, garden initiative. And the year she wrote the email, it was a really bad drought in the city, um, hardly any water at all. And the trees that they had planted in the park uh, that this volunteer had planted, or that the I don't know who planted them, but they were suffering. And I guess they had no irrigation system, no way to water the trees. So she told she she says that there is a wading pool in the park with chlorinated water. Isn't it better to water the trees while they were draining the wading pool? She wanted to suggest that they they water the trees with this leftover chlorinated water. Isn't that better than no water at all for the trees? Yes, with a with a caveat. Um, uh, if you use chlorinated water for your house plants, they say let it sit out for 24 hours before you water. That gets rid of some of the chlorine. Of course, there's more in the swimming pool, but sunlight also uh, encourages the evaporation of chlorine. So if they had just chlorinated yesterday, I would say no. 
if they're draining and they haven't added chlorine for a week, I should think that most of it would have evaporated and the very thirsty trees would be happy for it. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder what else they put in swimming pools. Who, uh, you know, I don't know what other chemicals, but I guess for me, what comes to my mind is, isn't chlorine salt? Doesn't, isn't that like pouring salt on a tree's roots? Uh, chlorine isn't salt, but in order to reduce chlorine levels, I believe, I, I don't have a swimming pool, but I believe some people are using more salt, sodium, uh, and other salt products in order to reduce chlorine use. So um, it would help to find out a little bit more about what they actually put in that pool. Very interesting. A very interesting response. Um, If any of the listeners have any thoughts or ideas, this is something I'm going to continue to investigate because there's my instinct just says, no, no, don't do it. I would rather people take buckets from home and, uh, you know, water the trees from home somehow. But that's me. I don't know. I'd like to continue investigating that. So, oh, my goodness. What a light. We just got a nice email from John. And John lives in B.C., British Columbia. Uh, John says, hi, no question. Just wanted to say a very interesting show. I live in Abbotsford, BC. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. I love that, that you wrote. That's wonderful. Isn't that nice? And you're a great guest, Liz. That's why people are writing in. So let me see. Now, I have time for another question or two. And I wanted to look at some of the, let's talk about microorganisms. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We have to get a winner for your book don't we? Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. Okay. Microorganisms, hold on because Gary in the studio just gave me a little CD container with no CDs in it, but it's got folded up pieces of paper. Uh, Liz, I wish you were here because then you could pick the name. Oh, that would be fun. It would be fun, but I'm, I'm channeling you and I'm picking it on your behalf. How's that sound? Great. Okay. Guess who the winner is? The winner is Gail. Gail is the winner. Congratulations, Gail. That is wonderful. I'm sorry for those of you that didn't win, but tune in again next month. We'll probably have something else great. So, Gail, we're going to send you an email, get your address, and we're going to send you a beautiful book. And Gary in the studio is nodding. He's saying, yes, we will send you a book. So we've got a couple of minutes. Let's talk about microorganisms. When you initially wrote this book 20 years ago, were people talking about microorganisms in soil as much as they are today? Not as much as today. It was it was something of a new concept. Um, nobody fermented their well. Few people fermented their compost, uh, air, aerated their compost tea, for example. Um, if you if you compost, then you know something about micro microorganisms, especially if it smells. Oh. <laughs> so people people learned about them uh, one way or another, but uh, we didn't know as much, and I didn't know that. Um, if you're growing fruit trees, you want to promote different micro, microorganisms than if you're growing um, vegetables and non-woody plants. That's so right. I had never heard of ramial wood chips 20 years ago, and that's something that people who grow fruit trees should find out about um, and ideally get some. If you include wood chips in your compost or in your mulch and they come from the tips of the trees and maybe include some leaves too, they'll have a much better balance of nitrogen and carbon, and they will feed fungal organisms as opposed to bacteria. Hot compost is bacterial organisms, which is just grand for your vegetable garden. Cold compost and ramial wood chips promote fungal organisms, 
and those are better for fruit trees. So fabulous. I mean, I've heard about people, if you've got a healthy tree, and you should know if your tree is healthy, you should hopefully know how to identify pest and disease problems. So if you're pruning your tree and it's healthy, you can clip your clippings into little tiny pieces in the mulch around your tree, and they will decompose. Is that correct? Yes. So so you talk about the fungal organisms. Do you know what do those fungal organisms do, and how do they help our fruit trees? Uh, they're one of the categories of organisms that break down um, plant matter into organic matter. Uh, you can call plant matter organic matter, but really I mean the the luscious dark humus that's partially broken down. Maybe you can recognize it, maybe not, but it's it's um, less recognizable than uh, the leaves that you rake up or the twigs that you're snipping with your clippers. Hmm. So, that, so that's a great suggestion. You said also get your hands on this uh, ramiel uh, compost. So, so where can you? Do you know where people can source it? If you, the easiest way, if you have trees, is to get a, a, a small backyard chipper, um, which some of them will chip leaves for you as well as small branches. And you need eye protection and you need to be very careful if you're going to be chipping your own branches. So um, that's one way I do tend to clip as I go along. And um, especially if you're getting suckers later in the year, just snip them into little pieces because the suckers are nice and soft and they'll break down quickly and they don't tire out your hands too much if you cut them into into pencil lengths or less. And so you just leave them in the whatever you're mulching your tree with, you you put them in the mulch and somehow the organisms will come and consume these little bits of branches? Yes, they'll, especially because leaves will fall on top and, and they just sort of get into the general mix. And if you see the little, um, if you have an old pile of, of wood chips, which I happen to have, and you see white threads running through them, those are the those are the good uh, fungal, the they're, they're hyphae. They're not actually roots, but it's the it's for a mushroom. That's the root equivalent spreading through the pile. Um, mushrooms are kind of like icebergs. The bit you see is really only a small a small bit of the organism, and these hyphae will just will work above ground as well uh, through the duff piles of wood chips and help to break them down and release the nutrients that trees need. And so with these clippings that you're talking about, obviously they'd be from when you prune your fruit tree. Can you take them from other trees as well, or would that not be good? You can take them from other trees. Um, it, it's the smaller the smaller branches that we used to wonder what to do with or pile in the, in the edge of the yard. The smaller branches have the nicer balance and are easier to cut up. So the younger ones. The new growth, really. Any new growth, I guess, you're removing. So, yeah. Well, that sounds great. Liz, I can't believe it. The The show is essentially over in just a minute. <laughs> I told you it was going to go quickly. It did. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you so much for letting us play your music. Oh, you are so welcome. And um, what a great show, and what a great source of information for people. <laughs> well, let's hope that we continue on for many, many more months to come. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a pleasure. Okay, great. Well, goodbye for now, and we shall talk again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
So that was Liz Stell, <clears throat> authors of Secrets to Great Soil, which is published by Story Books. That's it for, for today and for this show. If you enjoyed it, go visit my website, orchardpeople.com, and you can learn so much more. I've got courses and videos and blogs. You can also listen to archived episodes of this radio show at the website at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. And do be sure to sign up for my email list and you can get lots more news and information. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see you again next month. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. This show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.